Chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13 of Mistakes of Moses by Robert G. Ingersoll. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyot. Chapter 10. He Made the Stars Also. Moses came very near forgetting about the stars, and only gave five words to all the hosts of heaven. Can it be possible that he knew anything about the stars, beyond the mere fact that he saw them shining above him? Did he know that the nearest star, the one we ought to be the best acquainted with, is twenty billion of miles away, and that it is a sun shining by its own light? Did he know of the next, that is, thirty-seven billion miles distant? Is it possible that he was acquainted with Sirius, a sun two thousand six hundred and eighty-eight times larger than our own, surrounded by a system of heavenly bodies, several of which are already known, and distant from us eighty-two billion miles? Did he know that the polar star that tells the mariner his course and guided slaves to liberty and joy is distant from this little world two hundred and ninety-two billion miles, and that Capella wheels and shines one hundred and thirty-three billion miles beyond? Did he know that it would require about seventy-two years for light to reach us from this star? Did he know that light travels one hundred and eighty-five thousand miles a second? Did he know that some stars are so far away in the infinite abysses that five millions of years are required for their light to reach this globe? If this is true, and if, as the Bible tells us, the stars were made after the earth, then this world has been wheeling in its orbit for at least five million years. It may be replied that it was not the intention of God to teach geology and astronomy. Then why did he say anything upon these subjects? And if he did say anything, why did he not give the facts? According to the sacred records, God created, on the first day, the heaven and the earth, moved upon the face of the waters, and made the light. On the second day he made the firmament, or the expanse, and divided the waters. On the third day he gathered the waters into seas, let the dry land appear, and caused the earth to bring forth grass, herbs, and fruit-trees, and on the fourth day he made the sun, moon, and stars, and set them in the firmament of heaven, to give light upon the earth. This division of labor is very striking. The work of the other days is as nothing when compared with that of the fourth. Is it possible that it required the same time and labor to make the grass, herbs, and fruit-trees, that it did to fill with countless constellations the infinite expanse of space? CHAPTER Eleven, FRIDAY We are then told that on the next day God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creatures that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created whales, and every living creature which the waters brought forth abundantly, after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, 
Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. Is it true that, while the dry land was covered with grass, and herbs, and trees bearing fruit, the ocean was absolutely devoid of life, and so remained for millions of years? If Moses meant twenty-four hours by the word day, then it would make but little difference on which of the six days animals were made. But if the word day was used to express millions of ages, during which life was slowly evolved from monad up to man, then the account becomes infinitely absurd, puerile, and foolish. There is not a scientist of high standing who will say that in his judgment the earth was covered with fruit-bearing trees before the moners, the ancestors, it may be, of the human race, felt in Laurentian seas the first faint throb of life. Nor is there one who will declare that there was a single spire of grass before the sun had poured upon the world his flood of gold. Why should men, in the name of religion, try to harmonize the contradictions that exist between nature and a book? Why should philosophers be denounced for placing more reliance upon what they know than upon what they have been told. If there is a God, it is reasonably certain that he made the world, but it is by no means certain that he is the author of the Bible. Why, then, should we not place greater confidence in nature than in a book? And even if this God made not only the world, but the book besides, it does not follow that the book is the best part of creation and the only part that we will be eternally punished for denying. It seems to me that it is quite as important to know something of the solar system, something of the physical history of this globe, as it is to know the adventures of Jonah or the diet of Ezekiel. For my part, I would infinitely prefer to know all the results of scientific investigation than to be inspired as Moses was. Supposing the Bible to be true, why is it any worse or more wicked for free-thinkers to deny it than for priests to deny the doctrine of evolution, or the dynamic theory of heat? Why should we be damned for laughing at Samson and his foxes, while others, holding the nebular hypothesis in utter contempt, go straight to heaven? It seems to me that a belief in the great truths of science are fully as essential to salvation as the creed of any church. We are taught that a man may be perfectly acceptable to God even if he denies the rotundity of the earth, the Copernican system, the three laws of Kepler, the indestructibility of matter, and the attraction of gravitation. And we are also taught that a man may be right upon all these questions, and yet, for failing to believe in the scheme of salvation, be eternally lost. CHAPTER Twelve, SATURDAY On this, the last day of creation, God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and God saw that it was good. Now, is it true that the seas were filled with fish, the sky with fowls, and the earth covered with grass, and herbs, 
and fruit-bearing trees, millions of ages before there was a creeping thing in existence? Must we admit that plants and animals were the result of the fiat of some incomprehensible intelligence independent of the operation of what are known as natural causes? Why is a miracle any more necessary to account for yesterday than for today or for tomorrow? If there is an infinite power, nothing can be more certain than that this power works in accordance with what we call law, that is, by and through natural causes. If anything can be found without a pedigree of natural antecedents, it will then be time enough to talk about the fiat of creation. There must have been a time when plants and animals did not exist upon this globe. The question, and the only question is, whether they were naturally produced. If the account given by Moses is true, then the vegetable and animal existences are the result of certain special fiats of creation entirely independent of the operation of natural causes. This is so grossly improbable, so at variance with the experience and observation of mankind, that it cannot be adopted without abandoning forever the basis of scientific thought and action. It may be urged that we do not understand the sacred record correctly. To this it may be replied that for thousands of years the account of creation has, by the Jewish and Christian world, been regarded as literally true. If it was inspired, of course God must have known just how it would be understood, and consequently must have intended that it should be understood just as he knew it would be. One man writing to another may mean one thing, and yet be understood as meaning something else. Now, if the writer knew that he would be misunderstood, and also knew that he could use other words that would convey his real meaning, but did not, we would say that he used words on purpose to mislead, and was not an honest man. If a being of infinite wisdom wrote the Bible, or caused it to be written, he must have known exactly how his words would be interpreted by all the world, and he must have intended to convey the very meaning that was conveyed. He must have known that by reading that book, man would form erroneous views as to the shape, antiquity, and size of this world, that he would be misled as to the time and order of creation, that he would have the most childish and contemptible views of the Creator, that the sacred word would be used to support slavery and polygamy, that it would build dungeons for the good, and light faggots to consume the brave, and therefore he must have intended that these results should follow. He also must have known that thousands and millions of men and women never could believe his Bible, and that the number of unbelievers would increase in the exact ratio of civilization, and therefore he must have intended that result. Let us understand this. An honest, finite being uses the best words, in his judgment, to convey his meaning. This is the best he can do, because he cannot certainly know the exact effect of his words on others. But an infinite being must know not only the real meaning of the words, 
but the exact meaning they will convey to every reader and hearer. He must know every meaning that they are capable of conveying to every mind. He must also know what explanations must be made to prevent misconception. If an infinite being cannot, in making a revelation to man, use such words that every person to whom a revelation is essential will understand distinctly what that revelation is, then a revelation from God through the instrumentality of language is impossible, or it is not essential that all should understand it correctly. It may be urged that millions have not the capacity to understand a revelation, although expressed in the plainest words. To this it seems a sufficient reply to ask, why a being of infinite power should create men so devoid of intelligence that he cannot by any means make known to them his will? We are told that it is exceedingly plain, and that a wayfaring man, though a fool, need not err therein. This statement is refuted by the religious history of the Christian world. Every sect is a certificate that God has not plainly revealed his will to man. To each reader the Bible conveys a different meaning. About the meaning of this book, called Revelation, there have been ages of war and centuries of sword and flame. If written by an infinite God, he must have known that these results must follow, and thus knowing, he must be responsible for all. Is it not infinitely more reasonable to say that this book is the work of man, that it is filled with mingled truth and error, with mistakes and facts, and reflects, too faithfully perhaps, the very form and pressure of its time? If there are mistakes in the Bible, certainly they were made by man. If there is anything contrary to nature, it was written by man. If there is anything immoral, cruel, heartless or infamous, it certainly was never written by a being worthy of the adoration of mankind. CHAPTER Thirteen, LET US MAKE MAN We are next informed by the author of the Pentateuch that God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and that God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him male and female created he them. If this account means anything, it means that man was created in the physical image and likeness of God. Moses, while he speaks of man as having been made in the image of God, never speaks of God except as having the form of a man. He speaks of God as walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and that Adam and Eve heard his voice. He is constantly telling what God said, and in a thousand passages he refers to him as not only having the human form, but as performing actions, such as man performs. The God of Moses was a God with hands, with feet, with the organs of speech. A God of passion, of hatred, of revenge, of affection, of repentance, a God who made mistakes, in other words, an immense and powerful man. 
it will not do to say that moses meant to convey the idea that god made man in his mental or moral image some have insisted that man was made in the moral image of god because he was made pure purity cannot be manufactured a moral character cannot be made for man by a god every man must make his own moral character consequently if god is infinitely pure adam and eve were not made in his image in that respect others say that adam and eve were made in the mental image of god if it is meant by that that they were created with reasoning powers like but not to the extent of those possessed by a god then this may be admitted but certainly this idea was not in the mind of moses he regarded the human form as being in the image of god and for that reason always spoke of god as having that form no one can read the pentateuch without coming to the conclusion that the author supposed that man was created in the physical likeness of deity god said go to let us go down god smelled a sweet savor god repented him that he had made man and god said and walked and talked and rested all these expressions are inconsistent with any other idea than that the person using them regarded god as having the form of man as a matter of fact it is impossible for a man to conceive of a personal god other than as a being having the human form no one can think of an infinite being having the form of a horse or of a bird or of any animal beneath man it is one of the necessities of mind to associate forms with intellectual capacities the highest form of which we have any conception is man's and consequently his is the only form that we can find in imagination to give to a personal god because all other forms are in our minds connected with lower intelligences it is impossible to think of a personal god as a spirit without form we can use these words but they do not convey to the mind any real and tangible meaning everyone who thinks of a personal god at all thinks of him as having the human form take from god the idea of form speak of him simply as an all-pervading spirit which means an all-pervading something about which we know nothing and pantheism is the result we are told that god made man and the question naturally arises how was this done was it by a process of evolution development the transmission of acquired habits the survival of the fittest or was the necessary amount of clay needed to the proper consistency and then by the hands of god molded into form modern science tells that man has been evolved through countless epochs from the lower forms and that he is the result of almost an infinite number of actions reactions experiences states forms wants and adaptations did moses intend to convey such a meaning or did he believe that god took a sufficient amount of dust made it the proper shape and breathed into it the breath of life 
Can any believer in the Bible give any reasonable account of this process of creation? Is it possible to imagine what was really done? Is there any theologian who will contend that man was created directly from the earth? Will he say that man was made substantially as he now is, with all his muscles properly developed for walking and speaking, and performing every variety of human action? That all his bones were formed as they now are, and all the relations of nerve, ligament, brain, and motion as they are today? Looking back over the history of animal life, from the lowest to the highest forms, we find that there has been a slow and gradual development, a certain but constant relation between want and production, between use and form. The monor is said to be the simplest form of animal life that has yet been found. It has been described as an organism without organs. It is a kind of structureless structure a little mass of transparent jelly that can flatten itself out and can expand and contract around its food. It can feed without a mouth, digest without a stomach, walk without feet, and reproduce itself by simple division. By taking this monor as the commencement of animal life, or rather as the first animal, it is easy to follow the development of the organic structure through all the forms of life to man himself. In this way, finally, every muscle, bone, and joint, every organ, form, and function may be accounted for. In this way, and in this way only, can the existence of rudimentary organs be explained. Blot from the human mind the ideas of evolution, heredity, adaptation, and the survival of the fittest, with which it has been enriched by Lamarck, Goethe, Darwin, Haeckel, and Spencer, and all the facts in the history of animal life become utterly disconnected and meaningless. Shall we throw away all that has been discovered with regard to organic life, and in its place take the statements of one who lived in the rude morning of a barbaric day? Will anybody now contend that man was a direct and independent creation, and sustains and bears no relation to the animals below him? Belief upon this subject must be governed at last by evidence. Man cannot believe as he pleases. He can control his speech, and can say that he believes or disbelieves, but after all his will cannot depress or raise the scales with which his reason finds the worth and weight of facts. If this is not so, investigation, evidence, judgment and reason are but empty words i ask again how were adam and eve created in one account they are created male and female and apparently at the same time in the next account adam is made first and eve a long time afterwards and from a part of the man did god simply by his creative fiat cause a rib slowly to expand grow and divide into nerve, ligament, cartilage, and flesh? How was the woman created from a rib? How was man created simply from dust? For my part, I cannot believe this statement. I may suffer for this in the world to come, and may millions of years hence sincerely wish that I had never investigated the subject, 
but had been content to take the ideas of the dead. I do not believe that any deity works in that way. So far as my experience goes, there is an unbroken procession of cause and effect. Each thing is a necessary link in an infinite chain, and I cannot conceive of this chain being broken even for one instant. Back of the simplest monarch there is a cause, and back of that another, and so on, it seems to me, forever. In my philosophy I postulate neither beginning nor ending. If the mosaic account is true, we know how long man has been upon this earth. If that account can be relied on, the first man was made about 5,883 years ago. 1,656 years after the making of the first man, the inhabitants of the world, with the exception of eight people, were destroyed by a flood. This flood occurred only about 4,227 years ago. If this account is correct, at that time, only one kind of men existed. Noah and his family were certainly of the same blood. It therefore follows that all the differences we see between the various races of men have been caused in about 4,000 years. If the account of the deluge is true, then since that event all the ancient kingdoms of the earth were founded, and their inhabitants passed through all the stages of savage, nomadic, barbaric, and semi-civilized life, through the epochs of stone, bronze, and iron, established commerce, cultivated the arts, built cities, filled them with palaces and temples, invented writing, produced a literature, and slowly fell to shapeless ruin. We must believe that all this has happened within a period of four thousand years. From representations found upon Egyptian granite made more than three thousand years ago, we know that the negro was as black, his lips as full, and his hair as closely curled then as now. If we know anything, we know that there was at that time substantially the same difference between the Egyptian and the Negro as now. If we know anything, we know that magnificent statues were made in Egypt four thousand years before our era, that is to say, about six thousand years ago. There was at the world's exposition in the Egyptian department a statue of King Sephron, known to have been chiseled more than six thousand years ago. In other words, if the mosaic account must be believed, this statue was made before the world. We also know, if we know anything, that men lived in Europe with the hairy mammoth, the cave bear, the rhinoceros, and the hyena. Among the bones of these animals have been found the stone hatchets and flint arrows of our ancestors. In the caves where they lived have been discovered the remains of these animals that had been conquered, killed, and devoured as food hundreds of thousands of years ago. If these facts are true, Moses was mistaken. For my part, I have infinitely more confidence in the discoveries of today than in the records of a barbarous people. It will not do now to say that man has existed upon this earth for only about six thousand years. One can hardly compute in his imagination the time necessary for man to emerge from the barbarous state 
naked and helpless, surrounded by animals far more powerful than he, to progress and finally create the civilizations of India, Egypt, and Athens. The distance from savagery to Shakespeare must be measured not by hundreds, but by millions of years. End of section.